Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm Joe Anthony. Aaron's back! We're going to be talking about John's fourth POV chapter. This is the famous introduction to our favorite Gary Stew for one George R.R. Martin, that being Samuel Tarly. Steve and I cover the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and I thought that my conversation with Jana Matthews worked well as a bird's eye view. Take a moment to shout us out on social media, rate and review us on iTunes, share this podcast with a friend. We would love your support. Without further ado, here is Bosmang Aaron. So Aaron, last time we had you on to talk about Tyrion, we talked about whether or not Tyrion is a Mary Sue for Martin. Oh, you brought me on for the other Mary Sue chapter. Well, right? I feel like we almost have to have the same exact conversation about Samwell. Is Samwell a Mary Sue for Martin? I think it's definitely a Gary Sue for sure. Like, but it's like um, I I think that like um, Tyrion might represent Martin as he wishes he were. Mm-hmm. You know, where <laughs> Sam is him as he fears he is. Yeah. You know. Uh, a little craven, a little cowardly, a little plump, a little overly fond of uh, reading and and uh, uh, eating tarts instead of you know swinging a sword and getting out there and doing stuff. Um, well, he also loves music, and I know Martin is a big music aficionado. Right, loves to dance, even though he's not. I, you know, I can see I can see Martin cutting a rug at those Dragon Cons and uh the hugo awards and the nebula yeah he's he's definitely definitely the last one to leave the dance floor sure so i i can't i don't think that either one is a straight mary sue or gary stew or whatever because i think well number one i think that there has to be some kind of wish fulfillment enacted by the the, the character whereas samwell at least Seems like he's every bit is is every one of Martin's sort of worst characteristics, incapable a, of finishing books. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's has got scrolls stacked up uh, that that just you know they're like seventy five percent there, but just oof, oof. There's a couple of uh, thorny issues in the middle. He can't quite he get can't, through. He, he likes to start new projects. He doesn't <laughs> like to finish old projects. Oh shit! Um, he's a Gary Stew of me. Oh my god. <laughs> But in addition to that, Samwell is absolutely Samwise Gamgee too. So can't be. I mean, I I can't see a straight one to one mapping of Martin and and uh, Sam. In the same way, I can't see a straight one to one mapping of Martin and Tyrion. 
I think it's always going to be the case that a lot of times writers will write themselves into many characters. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that these two seem to have a lot, <laughs> a lot yeah. of Mary Sue qualities. It's like Tyrion is the guy, he's the part of you that like a week after you had a difficult confrontation, you think of the perfect insult, you know? <laughs> Sure. And Sam is the guy that actually like, well, uh, well you're stupid. You know, he's the, right. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So Sam, I mean, at least as we find him at the end of dance, Samwell is on his way to being a maester. Mm-hmm. And this brings up a topic that you brought up earlier. And that was, why didn't Sam just become a maester from the beginning? Yeah, and I think there's an answer in the books, which is that uh, his father beat him at the mere suggestion of a Tarly wearing a chains, and then he chained his boy to essentially a radiator. He black sn- he black snake moaned him mm-hmm. for three days to where poor Sam, you know, the chain around his neck was so tight that he 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 could barely breathe, and every time he nodded off, it choked him, and it was a it was a bad experience. So he's like, even after. Because this is this is during the scene where John tells him, "Hey, I'm gonna send you to Old Town and be and you're gonna be Castle Black's new maester," and he mm-hmm. freaks the fuck out because yeah. he's still like terrified of his father. But like, I don't understand. Like, the more I read about the Tarleys, the more it seems like he's just massively insecure because it's like all about oh, the Tarleys great. You know, um, um, a marsh. It's a martial house with lots of great accomplishments in war, and we've got this badass Valerian blade. And I don't understand why it never occurred to Tarly to just like if he's got. Because think about like what if he just leaned in to having a son like Sam. Yeah. You know. Like you still got Dickon as the the strong right hand, and there's many many houses that have that kind of like. You think about the Blackfish and his dumbass brother. You know, you've always there's there's it's not necessarily that like, you know, the the one that leads the house is the the strongest military commander, strongest sword. It's like that'd be kind of a cool combo, like a smart guy like Sam that's got the. you know, lots of book learning, uh, sitting at the head of Tarly with uh, Dickon to like deal with anybody that gets out of line. Uh, you know, think think about how f- much f- more wealthy and connect politically connected the house Tarly might be if they had someone like Sam as the as the lord. Uh, with with Dick in his strong right hand, and also like what like Randall, you know, if any lord comes up and be like, ha, 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 your first son's kind of fat, soft, but just punch him in the fucking face. That's that you know, and like yeah. you know, there you go. Like, if anyone gives you any guff about your your soft son, you just you just you just smash him in the face with your mailed fist. Get big strapping Dickin in there to to help you out if you need it. And then like, mm-hmm. what? Are, I, I I don't know. It's a shame. It's okay, a shame. I I've got a take on this, and it's a little bit highfalutin, but I'll run it past you. All right. Okay. So, in gender studies. Uh, we talk about things along the lines of sort of varying degrees of masculinity. Mm. And the ideal of masculinity, which is going to vary from culture to culture, is hegemonic masculinity. And this is your typical, you know, Captain Kirk type of guy. He's smart. He wins battles with words and swords. He's the kind of guy that you would want to be like the lord of a great house. Where's a girdle? Sure. Where's a big old codpiece? A big <laughs> old codpiece. And then 
below hegemonic masculinity are varying degrees of subordinate masculinity. So you don't have to go to like the the full on other spectrum where the person is completely feminized. But for instance, I think an example of probably hegemonic versus subordinate masculinity in our culture would be like the football player who's a quarterback would be example of hegemonic masculinity, you know, athlete, but also a leader of men, you know, smart enough to learn the, the playbook, all of that business. Then you all have all these wannabe, you know, man's men, men's men. How do you say that? Man's men? Man's yeah, men. Yeah, man's man. Who will wear that guy's jersey. They'll sit at home on their couches and they'll wear a jersey and on the back it'll say Montana or Brady or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not That's not someone who's queer in the technical sense of that term. That's just someone who's a little bit less hegemonic than the other guy. Right. Hmm. So in reality, these ideals of like the kind the kind of guy who could be like a submarine captain, that's very rare. It's a very rare type of guy. But it is the kind of guy that you need to be the head of a great house. And so I think that someone like Sam, who is pretty sort of low down the the, or, the pecking order toward subordinate masculinity, that guy is fine as a second or third or fourth son. And maybe in that role, he could be a maester. You know, if he was the second son of House Tarly, fine, go be a maester. But as the alpha male, and that's what you need your eldest son to be. You need, And if you want your house, your great house to be even greater, you can't have Samuel Tarly be the inheritor. So I think he's fine as a second son, as the first son, as the inheritor. If he's not that ideal of masculinity, he's worthless. That's my take on Randall Tarley's weird uh, view of yeah. Sam. I just think it's like not even in Westeros. Like I think Tar- Tarley's, uh, you know, he, his his view is not even mainstream within Westeros because like there's lots of houses, like Targaryens. There's uh, at least two maesters I can think of mm-hmm. uh, from that line. That and you know the idea that the Targaryens are like pushovers and war mm-hmm. is not not exactly a thing. I, I just feel like that he um, there, there's some kind of underlying base insecurity because yeah like, no if, I think if Sam right. takes if Sam take you know wears the chain uh, you know not only is like like um, a, a a particular type of kind of feather in his cap but uh, also then then Dickon just becomes the first son and he's the shining thing that he wants and it seems like there's a lot of just cruelty. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like just a lot of um, I, I don't know, like uh, the fact that like maybe Tarly doesn't actually think that he's that big of a, you know, he, he's, he's well, doing a maybe lot of you're right. Maybe it, and... maybe what's required for someone like Randall Tarly is both these weird views of masculinity or I, I shouldn't say weird. They're they're normalized, but they are wrongheaded views of masculinity plus an inferiority complex. So you get those two together and you end up with this horrible father figure. Yeah. Or like you know the other thing is like I've I've observed in my own relationships that like uh the thing that drives me crazy about my kid is the things where uh, his his weaknesses that he shares with me. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so like I feel like that Randall might have been that soft boy who liked his music and liked his tarts but his father beat the ever living piss out of him, didn't have a mother mm. that like stood up to him and said, "Hey, you can't do that." 
And so he's just internalized all that and just the anger and the rage that comes out that like Sam's able to get away with it. Like because right. uh, there was I think in this chapter, it's the one where they talked that there's like uh, almost a dozen men at arms that came through and tried to do, hey, you're going to have you sleep in yeah. your mail, boy, that's going to butch you up and. Uh, I'm going to going to, you know, make you dress like a woman and have everybody at court make fun of you. And that's going to put you up and you're going to, you know, and and it's just soaking goat's blood or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the the warlocks of uh, pre, which that's another interesting detail from this story. Randall Tart, these guys who almost, uh, you know, made off with three dragons and Buffalo, the mother of dragons. He, uh, they, they come over here to the to uh, put some put some stiffness in Sam's spine. Fails yeah. and Randall flogs him. Sends these warlocks home packing. Like you know what? The- I got a little vibe there. Like um, like really uh, conservative parents who send their kids through uh, conversion therapy. Right. I I, I was kind of getting a little conversion therapy vibe. Um, well, I also I was going through this um. Like these warlocks is like so at this stage in the game the warlocks don't have much power because dragons have left their world and the magic has left the world and they've all they're talking about like oh man you know we all of our powers are diminishing. I wonder if these two warlocks go back over to Essos and they're nursing their sore back hides and all of a sudden the power starts flowing into the next book and they start planning elaborate blood magic against Randall Tarly and maybe that's why him and Dickon <laughs> end up burning uh, two and a half years later or whatever. Like it's like oh yeah I can't believe y'all you flog us when we got no power ah you know <laughs> we we got we got NBA Jam flames coming off of our heads now wait wait until we get a hold of you son of a bitch. <laughs> All right, I'm going to do a short synopsis of this chapter. Here's my synopsis. Jon Snow is training at arms when a new recruit enters. The boy is notably rotund and must be fitted with modified armor. Alistair Thorne sets the new boy against a much more powerful and better trained Halder. Halder makes short work of him, leaving the boy bloodied and crying for mercy. But Thorne commands that the boy be beaten until he can get back onto his feet, something that our portly friend just can't do. John steps in to help, and soon Thorne has divided the group into Team Piggy and Team Get Piggy. <laughs> John's skill with the sword wins the day, and he learns that the new recruit is Samuel Tarley, eldest son of Randall Tarley. John later learns that Sam has been forced to the wall, fleeing a death threat from his father. It seems that Randall Tarley refused to let a coward become the Lord of Horn Hill. Sam, a self-confessed coward is an outcast at first, but befriends John. John convinces the rest of the recruits to disobey Thorn and spare Sam from a daily beating. So, Aaron, do you want to talk about a character, plot point, a theme, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? Uh, I, I tell you what, before we, maybe we climb the ladder of chaos, but like I, I do want to say that I was particularly mortified when I did the the stone to pounds uh, calculation <laughs> to find that I was only about five pounds less heavy than the literal fattest person that Jon Snow has ever seen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that that had me uh, put down the Kindle and stare into space for about five minutes. Thanks yeah, for that, me, John. Me, when you sent me that text, I was thinking... Yeah, but this is the medieval period. Everyone's probably like five three or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I did a little research. Nope, <laughs> they were about yeah, they were about normal <laughs> heights. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, thank God I'm above average height, so I can at least you know uh, uh, delude myself that that I wouldn't be uh, 
Alistair Thorne's uh, whipping boy. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that was like, oh, Jesus. Oh, man, I need to cut back on the I mean, whatever I'm think doing. about the kinds of people at Winterfell. They're eating turnips out of the hothouse or whatever. Mm. Yeah, they're they're hunting game. They're eating squirrels and whatnot. They're they're not, the, the people up at Winterfell are probably not living high on the hog. Yeah. So it could be that it could be that John just hasn't encountered a man of you know uh, generous girth. This uh, is true. <laughs> this is true. The North does not seem, except for Lord Manderley, famously Lord Too Fat to Sit a Horse, um, who was a. Yeah. Uh, Who's a who's a Southron? You know he's a trans mm-hmm. he's a transplant to recent only a thousand years ago transplant to the north. Uh, yeah, I imagine there's not a lot of a lot, lot of girthy people in, in now, the north. Or just not the earlier food in a previous chapter, Tyrion observes that Bowen Marsh. He said he's as round as a red pomegranate. Now I don't know what that really means, but it's very alliterative, and it suggests that maybe he's uh, he's he's rotund. Anyway, Sam's girth is enough to be notable and enough to have to modify the armor, cram him into the new armor. Did you think that's another one of Sir Alistair's cruelties? Because this guy has a well uh, well fitting and probably very high yeah. quality suit of armor. How hard is it to black armor? And I know leather. You just dye yeah. it. Like there's no. Like, I don't think you can get like black leather from black cows. Uh, I'm pretty sure you have to dye that. So like. I took this as evidence that this is just he doesn't want, you know, because like Sam, if he's wearing properly fitted armor, might actually look slightly less ridiculous than a guy who's got two piece of armor that's stitched together with a strip of leather and all that kind of stuff. But I, I saw that as ev- more evidence of um, and I might not I might be wrong. Maybe it's impossible to black metal. Uh, I, I, you know, you, you wonder how the uh, how the the chief uh, armor of the of Castle Black can do it. But like, did you think that was odd too? It's like this guy's got a well a, a suit of armor that fits him and it's high quality, and they're like, "Nah, you got to put that away. It's not black, kid." Yeah, I always view Alistair Thorne as something of a drill sergeant who's kind of trying to beat, yeah, any kind of agenda or willpower, and in this case, class out of a new recruit. Like, if you're gonna yeah. really become a brother. We got to let you know that you're not better than anyone else, especially, you know, if you were the eldest son of a great house or something like mm. that. So I saw that as kind of I got to beat I got to beat the class out of this kid. Or it could just be like, hey, you're nothing. You're nothing. You're going to wear the same armor as everyone else. And uh, and if you're too fat for it, we're going to shame you into thinning, mm. thinning down so that you fit into this armor. I, yeah. I I wouldn't put any of that past Thorn. Yeah, and I, I I can see a certain amount of sense of that. That like you know maybe like I you know when Sam walks through the gates, they're like, oh Jesus, this kid's gonna be a steward for sure. You know the, the mm-hmm. idea that he's gonna be a ranger, nah, 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 nah. But like in the in the ten thousand year plus history of the Night's Watch, right? Like there's they've had to had some tough luck cases. Uh, yeah, you know, but had, I bet you all of, of those cases, whether you're a steward or whatever. You still got to be initiated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if yeah, you're going to yeah, become yeah. a man of the Night's Watch, you got to clean the same latrines as everyone right. else. And they even make that point with John that, like, John's got his favorite duties, but, like, he's got a muck, you know, he's got a muck stable. He's got to gravel the, uh, the, the walks. Yeah. He's got to do, you know, like, he, he likes going out and hunting game for the Lord Commander's table, but, like, most of the stuff he does is kind of like back breaking drudgery. Yeah. 
That's right. Uh, Jon Snow really shows his quality. I was actually moved by this chapter. I thought the the end where, you know, Sam's like, uh, I've never had a friend before. And John's like, you still don't. You've got a brother. <laughs> I thought that, like, that actually kind of got me. Like, mm-hmm. and John's just such a fucking bro. He's such a great natural leader. Mm-hmm. Um, where they they that this great scene where, you know, uh, these these kid that like, cause like, when Sam confesses to being a coward, a craven, like none of the others, like Jesus, we've never seen a guy that just comes up like, oh, you know me, I'm a coward. Yeah, who, and, would, who would admit to that? Right, and like even John like is taken aback and is like, God, that's fucking, this is wild. But instead of like just rolling with his presuppositions and uh, surmises, he's like, you know what? I'm gonna actually sidle up to this guy and see what his deal is. And if you ever do that, like I, I, I kind of recommend if you deal with it, if you're working or in a relationship with a difficult person, just yeah, like just just. And sometimes you'll find out their deal is they're just a giant asshole or they're a fucking idiot. But most of the time, once you hear a person out, you're like, oh, that's why you are the way you are. And you're still these ways to contribute. And the way that John did that at a very young age, um, of course, obviously, Martin is grooming him to be the impressive character that he's going to become. Um, but I, I just thought, like, John, this is this is the reason why John became one of my early favorites, because he's just such a good guy. So here's a I'll, I'll read this little passage here I thought was telling. So John is kind of doing his chores, and and uh, Martin writes, he could think here, and he found himself thinking of Samuel Tarley, and oddly of Tyrion Lannister. He wondered what Tyrion would have made of the fat boy. Mm. Most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it, the dwarf had told him, grinning. The world was full of cravens who pretended to be heroes. It took a queer sort of courage to admit cowardice, as Samuel Tarley had. And I thought that was an interesting paragraph that I really hadn't seen before, or I don't remember reading before, because it gives you the sense that John has really learned a lesson from Tyrion, and had he not learned that lesson, mm-hmm. he might have viewed Samuel differently. He may not have befriended Samuel. He's able to see a little bit with a little bit more nuance because of his friendship with Tyrion. And in some ways, Tyrion should be credited for this quality of leadership you're noticing in Jon. Oh, for sure. And like that, that leads in that, that reflection he has the, you know, um, boy, there's this guy that uh, admits to being a coward, but, uh, but but Jon knows, you know, being a, a bastard Lord himself, the world's full of cravens who pretend to be heroes. It takes a queer sort of courage to admit the cowardice. Like, I, yeah. Uh, and absolutely, absolutely, you could credit that uh, new wrinkle in John's brain to Tyrion, for sure. So here's an interesting thing about John. Like, he he desperately wants to belong, but he's been an out- outsider for so long that he he's brave enough to go on his own if he has to like all of he's got all these friends at the night's watch and and you're getting Mm -hmm. the sense that all these guys have kind of a quirky but lovable personality as a collective like they're genuinely enjoying each other you know you've got these kind of types like you know you got got grant who can sing and pip who can like mimic voices and you've got right. rast who's kind of an asshole you know you've got yeah, all these sort he's of just a fucking rapist dick <laughs> yeah total total you know high, high, i guess high school types or whatever mm-hmm. and john has a nice 
uh, reputation among them. Mm-hmm. But he's not above kind of going his own way and going and sitting with Sam, taking Sam outside where he knows he could probably have a better conversation with him. That's such a great. That's such a great part. Yeah, like John yeah, seeing so, how uncomfortable he was, and like yes. you know what, we got to get out of here. We got to get out. We got to get you out of here. And this is the part where I, I don't think John gets enough credit. I think that some people don't think he's strategically minded or something like that, and think, well, then he's just as stupid as Ned or something like that. I think John has this instinctual ability to befriend and see the best qualities in the people around him. And I, I, so I think that that sometimes gets understated. I think that John is a natural leader in that way, and that's not mm-hmm. easy. Mm-hmm. And and also just the like how uh, Martin yada yadas through uh, John Snow's uh, leadership here of the the table of boys that kind of like you know they're all down with the Westeros ma- uh, hegemonic uh, masculinity, and they're like, "What's yeah. this guy? He's truly a craven?" And they're starting to lean into the piggy stuff. And John like slams his fist on the table and says, "Stop!" And he says, uh, "You know, uh, John knew the words to move them. One by one, the rest fell in line. He persuaded some, cajoled others, shamed a few, made threats where threats were required." Yeah. Uh, I-, I thought that was like, yeah, I mean. You could have taken another five pages to actually show that, but like you can kind of see John do it, right? You know, clasping his hand on someone's shoulder and like, remember when you came here and you're this, that, and I did that, and uh, you know, I we all know that I can beat your ass in the the sword yeah. yard. What's a, yeah? And when I also John, got this ten ten ton direwolf if I yeah. if I can get the job done. Yeah, when John gets a, a bee in his bonnet, he can be resourceful. He can cajole. He can argue with nuance. I mean, I do, I do think we're getting the sense that having to be a master negotiator of class at Winterfell has kind of paid off. Like, he has to, he's learned in his upbringing at Winterfell how to be the ideal second son in a way. There's this story about Kierkegaard. Where And it's probably apocryphal. Who knows if it's true or not. But Kierkegaard would say that his father knew that he was the smartest kid in his class, but he wanted to teach Kierkegaard strategy. So he said, I always want your marks to be the third best in the class. So Kierkegaard all, you know, had, had to learn all of the, you know, the content of the class, but he also had to kind of strategically miss out just enough so he was always in third place. Interesting. And I feel like... Yeah, it's kind of weird. Who knows if it's true? But I kind of feel like that's what it's like to be a bastard at Winterfell. It's like you got to be good enough, but you have to always be just below Rob Stark in in what you do. Yeah, you can't you can't show up the plowboys and the 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 the, the crofter sons and all that because they'll resent you for it. You gotta you gotta bring you gotta elevate people, not lord yourselves over them. Yeah, right, right, right. Do, do you think that deep down this is what Alistair Thorne wanted? Because I, I I don't like you know uh like like that he was hoping that the that this would weld this kind of uh, cadet unit into a cohesive whole. Uh, or do you think that he's actually mad that uh, nobody will beat the piss out of Sir Piggy? I think he's mad that no one will beat the piss out of Sir Piggy. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, um, Jor Mormont needed to choose the right person to beat these recruits into submission. 
And so Alistair Thorne is a hammer of a man, right? Right. And he's like, okay, how am I going to best use this guy? When the new recruits come in, if they if they can survive Alistair Thorne, then they will be men. I I think that that's his whole job is to make a man out of these, you know, this hodgepodge group of outcasts. And the only way he knows how to do it is is to beat, beat, beat someone like Sam into submission. That's that's my take anyway. Yeah, and he might. That's uh, a good point that like he has to be good at what he does because we don't think Jor's a fool and a pretty right. good eye for talent and and how to use it. And this is the position that he's put uh, Thorn in. So yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't want a man with too much compassion in that role. Otherwise, you're not going to get men of the Night's Watch. Right. Right. Got a question for you. Yeah. All right, so I was talking with my sister, and I was trying to come up with um, a character who's both kind of a great fighter and also a, a great strategic mind. Because it seems in Mar- it seems like in Martin's world, you're either one or the other or neither. But it's very hard to find both of those things in one character. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, can you think of a Game of Thrones character who's both kind of a strategic genius and also mastered I, the the martial arts as well? I think the closest you come, and, and but the thing is, is to your point that no one puts him on the top five swordsmen of Westeros is Ned Stark. Uh, Ned Stark was Robert's number two guy and chief strategist throughout the rebellion. Uh, also you know, a good, a good enough swordsman to hold his own against, you know, as it gets uh, what five, three odds against the Kingsguard, but uh, still, still, um, and, you know, kind of, you know, not completely embarrass himself against Jamie Lannister, even though he was, you know, uh, uh, wounded. Right. Um, I think that, that that's the one I always think of that like he is not like got his uh, sword to S rank. Right. But he's an A or a B. And as far as his uh, strategic mind and, you know, because he, he also, I think he put down a rebellion post, uh, post Robert's rebellion. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that he's he's the one that jumps to my mind anyway. Come on, man. Ned Ned's no genius. Come on, let let's. Famously, I didn't say. I said that he's famously, a, he's not a genius. <laughs> all the Stark boys know nothing, but I think that, like, uh, you know, genius. Uh, 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 I think that, like I said, you know, he was uh, he was the the battlefield commander for Robert's Rebellion, or for a lot of it, the number two okay. guy. The the guy that I brought up uh, when I was having this conversation with my sister was Braun. Like, I think Braun's a killer. A killer who I'd put, you know, hand-to-hand combat with almost anyone, uh, sword-to-sword combat with almost anyone, and I think he's really smart, too. And her point was, is he the kind of smart that kind of can think five steps ahead of everyone else, like Tywin or Tyrion or Varys or Littlefinger? And I, I had to admit, no, I don't think Braun is that person, and I don't think, I certainly don't think Ned is that person. 
No, like I think Bronn's like a special forces commander. Like you know, you give him forty good men, some rope, and he'll impregnate various bitches. But, uh, I but but like you know, logistics. Can you imagine Bronn like looking over tables and trying to like decide how many slabs of salted pork he needs versus how many barrels of water and ale for the campaign? Mm-hmm. Whereas like I think that Ned can do that. I think that Ned can do yeah, that strategic so. thinking. Yeah, and I'm, think- again, I'm not saying he's a genius. I'm just saying that he, you know, uh, and, and, and leading men and mastering logistics and stuff that I think that he's one of the better blends of brawn and, and brain, uh, at least in martial areas. He doesn't know any fuck all about politics, which is a liability in a military commander for sure. But yeah. So I think that this is kind of an interesting move that that Martin does. I don't think he wants any one character to have that kind of power. You know, there's no Darth Vader yet in this world unless, like, someone like Euron becomes that person. Um, you know, even someone like Tywin, who you think probably would acquit himself pretty well in his youth, has, you know, he, he's dealing with his own age, right? Yeah, or even yeah. even someone like Danny, who's pretty smart and has the biggest guns, she doesn't know how to fire those weapons she doesn't know how to wield her dragons yet right so so everyone who has everyone so far in this story has potential to be a darth vader type but no one has fully kind of gotten to that brain plus brawn equals superpower kind of status yet yeah i i I go along with that notable introductions uh, in this chapter we hear about well, of course, Sam. Sam is introduced. Because says lead off with the big one, literally. Yeah, Sam. Um, we meet Albert and uh, uh, someone named Pimple. Would you rather be named Sir Piggy or Pimple? Is that not Pip? I, I took that as like that was Pip's full name. Oh, maybe that's what he calls Pip. Uh, I know. Pimple... I mean, like, like, like that's like uh, Pip versus Pippin in Lord of the Rings. His full name sure. is Pip Pipple. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So there is someone nicknamed Pimple, and it's not a great nickname. That's all I know. Uh, we hear about Heartsbane for the first time. We hear about Randall Tarley and Dickon of Horn Hill. Dickon of Horn Hill. There's a lot of expectations there. Yeah, there's uh, there's uh, expectations for for jokes uh, preceding him into the room anyway. Which yeah, I, I love how this, the the series eventually pays that off with Braun. Wasn't a Braun like losing his shit about Dickon? Well, Jamie does, and then Braun does, and I think it's the the same actor as the guy who was in the Umbrella Academy, who plays. Dickon. Yes, yes, he is. He's the Gorilla Man from the. Uh, I just looked it up. Uh, Pip is Pipar. So he's uh, this pimple guy must be something different. I guess so. We hear about the the striding huntsman uh for the first time. And I think this is the first mention of Corn Halfhand. I'm not positive about that. But um you know, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong on this. Interesting. Point. Um Rast is introduced. Um show versus book differences. I felt like this chapter was like a one for one mapping onto the show even down to kind of the lines that Alistair Thorne delivers it was very hard to find any notable differences yeah Did even the no nah, even the the threatening rast with ghost kind of goes like everything just kind of yeah this is very much uh, a faithful adaptation 
Yeah, it's interesting to me which which scenes they decide to do that with. Um, clearly, clearly, Martin's storytelling wins the day on this one. Yeah, I thought this was a particularly well written chapter. There's a lot of uh, just like little uh, grace notes, like uh, they talk about. Uh, Sam, you know, on the way to Castle Black, I'd never seen snow before, and I thought it was beautiful at first, but then I just froze, mm. and I didn't think I would ever end. And <laughs> and then uh, John, when uh, Sam just breaks down and starts weeping, John just sits there and, like, lets it happen, and he says, like the snowfall on the barrel ends, it seemed the tears would never end. I thought that was pretty nice. Uh... Okay, Aaron, you're not going to remember this. My very first email to you was an email that I sent to the Bald Move account to ask you this question, this very question. Mm-hmm. All right, so you've got John, you've got his second, who's whose name's Sam, and if you put Pipar and Gren together, you basically get Peregrine. And so I wanted to know if the Pip, Gren, Sam, and... John combination is something of an analog to the Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Mary combination. First of all, Jesus Christ, these last few years is a long way to go to get your answer. Uh, <laughs> kudos, no, kudos no, no, for you, the long, you, for the you long. Did, you did answer that on, oh, I? on the okay. show. Oh, okay. I remember I you like... answered it on the show. <laughs> Uh, man, I hope I have the same answer. I think, I think, of course, like Martin is very playful in his writing. We know that he throws in New York Giants references to, you know, to quarterbacks, to teams, mm. to all that kind of stuff. Like one, one is a big Phil Simms joke. And there's a Dark Lord, Bella, you know, Belichick. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, and the idea that he would not do that to the man that he essentially owes every, I mean, everyone, everyone that's written about a dungeon, a dragon, uh, or, yeah. or, uh, accommodations owes it all to Tolkien. Right. So. I think that's a and, and I, I the, like the, the idea that he's broken these names and kind of like, you know, you got Pip for, you know, Pippin and Grin for Par- I, I I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Is that what All I right. said back in the day? Here's the second part of the question, and I think this is where you demurred. All right. So then the, the, the second part of my question was this. If if that's the case, then that means John is kind of taking the Frodo role. Are there enough interesting parallels between Frodo and John to be predictive for John's outcome? Well, I I guess yeah. Now I mean, like to the extent that the broad strokes of the the television show are eventually what Martin intends, and I kind of believe that. I kind of believe that. Like, I, and in fact, a, a couple months ago, I read someone kind of like deconstructing season eight and like Martinifying it. Like, mm-hmm. okay, well, maybe this wasn't the greatest way to get to, and who else has a better story than Brent? Um, but like, you know, with a little touch more of darkness and melancholy and bittersweet that you can get to some of these notes. I think it's telling that like John did save the kingdom for everyone but himself, right? That's what that's what Frodo yeah. said. I'm I'm glad I saved the Shire, but I didn't save it for me. And there's some wounds that won't heal. He loses the love of his life, and he ends up uh metaphorically sailing to the west by going back to Castle Black where 
Yeah. You know, he knows his place and everything fits and he can no longer concern himself with the affairs of the realm and et cetera, et cetera. So like, yeah, I can I can see that. Like the Jon Snow's cursed. He's not going to have like uh, an Aragorn coronation where he gets his best girl and he's going to have a bunch of kids and he's made whole by all this stuff. He can just like kind of shrug his shoulders, let all that weight fall off of him and just be Lord probably the best lord commander the watch has had in in mm. several generations and if you think about the the wall kind of representing the end of the the world it is kind of what frodo does at the end you know he goes beyond the end of the world he goes beyond the sea to kind of into retirement i i suppose yeah yeah it's an interesting parallel and i'm often you know really reluctant to find any kind of allegory I don't think that Martin ever wants a one-to-one mapping. Like, even with sort of the, the Pipar and Gren naming, that sounds like Peregrine took, but then Mary's left out of it. But then there are four of them together, you know? So it's like Martin never chooses to do a perfect mapping one-to-one. Like, Sam may be a Gary Stew, but he's also Samwise Gamgee. So he's conflating, he's dividing... He's flipping things on their head. That's how he likes to use and these yeah, homages. Like, there's another good one because Sam uh, uh, Samwise is famously stout of heart and courageous. He yeah, might not right, right. be the best fighter. He might be swinging a frying pan, but he's going to fucking swing that frying oh, pan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, try to save, whereas you know, Sam's going to, Tarly's going to wet himself. Um, but yeah, you're right. And it, that, but that that is an homage within an homage because we all know that... Uh, Tolkien uh, hated the idea that any of his works were uh, allegory or straight yeah. one-to-one anything. Sure. Although I think he doth protest a bit too much on some of that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I could see, like, you know, um, Martin's a clever enough writer, and he's been working on this enough that, like, you know, if he's got some wheels within wheels, some homages within homages, and um, I, I think that's a, that's a good idea. And it does seem like he's the type of writer that likes putting that stuff in. And I, I also wonder, like... You know, he's we got like dozens of these like little book Easter eggs that we know of and are documented. I wonder how many there are actually like there's got to be at least two or three private jokes that he put in there that no one knows, you know, references to an ex yeah. references to a childhood bully. Like, you know, like stuff that like, you know, and, and, and we may never know. He might you know mm-hmm. take that stuff to his grave. I think that's kind of cool. If I was an author, I'd do shit like that. Well, it, it's right. And, and right now we're just talking about intentionality. I mean. Then you come up with hundreds upon hundreds of unintentional homages, things that he has sort of gotten through osmosis over the years, just being a consumer of stories. <laughs> yeah, right. And then they just kind of bleed out of him without him really knowing that he's doing it. And those might guide the narrative, too. But the other thing about Martin is that he does like to subvert narrative. So even if he's sort of borrowing from Lord of the Rings here and there, Especially if he's doing it consciously, he's probably eventually going to want to throw you a curveball at the end mm-hmm. just to kind of surprise and delight you. Oh, I think when Aragorn gets beheaded in the first book, I think that's definitely <laughs> a curveball. <laughs> Shocked the hell out of me when I got there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And as Steve and I cover The Bear and the Maiden Fair, this is episode 7 of season 3. The writing credit goes to one George R.R. R. Martin. This is the one where Rob learns that Talisa is pregnant and Arya escapes from the Brotherhood. She gets captured by the Hound. And of course, as the title suggests, both Jamie and Brienne fight a bear. Here is Steve Osborne. Steve, if you were going to choose your own personal sex therapist from among the following options, All right. which of the following would would meet your needs? I mean, we're, you have to keep in mind, like, this is just for you. This isn't for someone you'd recommend to anyone. All right, so there's a Lady Marjorie mm-hmm. who gives sex advice to Sansa. There's Braun who gives sex advice to Tyrion. Or there's Torment Giants Bane, who gives sex advice to anyone who will listen. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I it seems obvious to go with Giants Bane just because I, I there's like a, a broader approach. Because the difficulty of picking somebody to meet my needs is I only know the needs that I know. Okay, all right. So I, I need someone that might awaken something with it. Oh, all right. You want someone that will sort of guide you into uncharted waters. Yeah, I'm looking for a sexual docent. Well, <laughs> in addition to that, his advice comes with, like, choreography. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. For those of us who are visual learners. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, like, yeah, it's the show don't tell. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah. All right. So let's, which one of these shall we talk about first? Uh, do we get the more uncomfortable out of the way first or? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, which made you the most uncomfortable? Well, I mean, <laughs> so this is, this is a debate in the house. Like I'll use the phrase poor Theon and Heather's just not having it. Oh, there's no, there, she, there's she no. She feels no sympathy for none, Theon. None, none whatsoever. Not interested. Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I, because we talked about the complication, and so I tried to relay the notion of complications. She's just like, yeah, it's not really all that complicated. <laughs> Here's the the one thread through all of Theon's character arcs. So we go from a lot of different sort of levels of Theon, different sort of emotional registers of Theon, but through every single register, he's always annoying. Yeah. That's true. Like even you know, even, even when he's being tortured, he's a little bit annoying. <laughs> he was sure. I mean, he doesn't torture well. I guess. I mean, <laughs> it's an unfortunate circumstance, right? I mean, like that's what he is now. It's like, pff, be a man when you're getting your skin flayed, will you? <laughs> so Theon, jeez, oh, is it this episode that he loses his junk? Oh yeah. Okay, all right. So I need to apologize on this front. I'm I'm doing my best not to spoil this show for you, but I do believe in a previous conversation. 
I spoiled this element of the story. Yeah, I believe this was a post-debrief debrief. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I had mentioned that I had gotten a touch ahead, and uh, and then you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, so they cut off Theon's junk, and I'm like, well, no, not yet, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I have that to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so sorry for spoiling that. I, I know that that, I mean, maybe that's an okay thing to spoil. I'm not sure. Sure. I mean, it's all right. Did you tell Heather or did you wait for her? I waited for her. And, and again, she's just, and she's just like not moved. I, that's what I think is, is, is pretty impressive about it. Like, cause I'm just like, ah, man, she's just like, ah, well, don't kill, don't kill kids. <laughs> <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you, yeah. sir. And I'm like, well, at what point did like, I'm all, is this just, just, he could just keep getting this ad nauseum and that's fine. She just, yeah, just not, not super interested. No sympathy for for Thane. I I think she's just still upset from the because uh, uh, he killed John Wick's dog. <laughs> yeah, he that's an that's an annoying move too. You know, sure it is. Yeah, and don't annoy John Wick. No, and he he <laughs> there's it, it might as well be Theon in John Wick because the way he he behaves. <laughs> All right, so just so you know, in the books. Theon's junk is not removed, although it it's there's a couple hints that it might be removed. Oh, interesting. So, in other words, in order to keep Tyrion's nose, <laughs> a sacrifice had to be made. That makes sense. It's sort of like when Indiana Jones is sort of balancing the idol and the <laughs> the, the, ba- the bag of sand. Right. Uh, they yeah. did that with Tyrion's nose and Theon's junk. Yeah. Good news, you keep the nose, Peter. Uh, hey, could you come in real <laughs> so, quick? Could you close close the door, Peter? We're, we just want Dinklage. Uh, yeah, Dinklage came out on top for sure. <laughs> so this plot line is becoming. I'll be honest. I, I feel like it's I'm like okay, here we go. What, what's going to happen to Theon now? As and so I, I feel like there's an element of like, where's this going? Like to assume it serves sort of a larger purpose, right? Like, is there going to be a point where Rob encounters him? Will he be alive? Will he be dead? What does this do to Rob's? Um, does Rob, well, yeah. So there's just a lot to this that I, yeah, yeah. I, I know that there's something coming, but then there's just so much torture. Um, a few thoughts on this. I think that torture should be hard to watch. Sure. Right. I do think that, um, like we talked about before, I think that torture on screen is more effective the less you see. Mm-hmm. Right. They're definitely not going that route with this. Right. So it could be very much overdone. And I think I could probably do with less torture. I, I can understand why someone would have a problem with the way that Theon's being treated on scene. Well, it's not even necessarily, I mean, like, okay, the torture there, but then I get to a point, like, uh, we've just seen sequence after sequence after sequence of this, of this brutal torture. Great. The hope, there should be a payoff. It's, I mean, because, because I'm into these other stories and it's like, and if you just had a, even just like a scrawl, like a Star Wars type scrawl, and Theon gets his <laughs> balls cut off and you're like, all right, okay, I get it. I mean, in fact, that might even uh, be more like. <laughs> the other thing that came to mind was that, you're introducing this new character, Ramsey, right? So in addition to asking the question, what is this actually doing for Theon's plot? It's pretty clear by now that you've got this new villain. Right. And he yeah, this is and, a complicated <laughs> villain if 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 unleashed. Yeah, so this guy we're being taught over and over again that this guy is a pretty bad guy. Yeah. So and I always feel like 
with any good guy, bad guy story, the narrative is only as good as the villain is compelling. That's my bias. I don't know if it's a hard and fast rule or whatever, but I really like stories with really complex, interesting villains. Right. So I think that these... Do you find Ramsey at this point to be complex or interesting? Because I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure I do. Well, not yet. However, I feel like I'm learning more about Ramsey in these scenes and not learning a whole lot more about Theon. I guess that's Yeah, and that's fine. I feel like, you know... Maybe we, we've learned what we need to learn about Theon right now. I mean, we've seen him sort of have this moment of regret. But again, is that regret by virtue of being tortured? Or is that regret, like genuine regret, right? I mean, whatever. That's kind of like, you could put a pin in that. You know, shifting the, and maybe that's the thing, shifting the attention towards Ramsay and all this, as opposed to the Theon narrative that we're actually introducing a new narrative, potentially. It does change maybe the way I, I view these scenes. Uh, in addition to all of that, we need to add Theon's junk to the dismemberment count. Absolutely. And how do we how do we uh, quantify it? I would think at least three. I think at least three, right? I mean, that's our assumption that they didn't just leave one piece. I, I think that's that's even worse. Wouldn't that be something? Hey, keep this one. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> just a reminder. I could see Ramsey doing something like that too. Yeah, keeping one as a rabbit's foot. <laughs> Uh, all right, I want to talk about Tyrion, who is being foisted upon Sansa. Yeah. A lot of fans were really annoyed with Shay this episode. Well, you said that, by and large, Shay was not a very popular character. Or no, popular... no, not really. Interesting. However, in this rewatch, I have found her to be... Well, let me just put it this way. I think she gives Tyrion some good advice. I think when she says, let's go, let's go across the narrow sea... We'll just live, uh, you know, we won't be wealthy. We'll just be, you know, man and wife. I think this is good advice. Yeah. I think Tyrion should take this advice. Right. Yeah, there is an interest. That's that's an interesting thing to show. We genuinely believe, at least I do, that he genuinely loves Shay. Yeah, I think we're supposed to believe that at least, um, right? But there's another thing that he loves, at, probably at least equally, if not maybe just a scotch more, and that's... That's the purpose he's found in the game. Right. He's the guy who's in love with his career and aspirations. And he, Yeah, and for a guy who's... He wants to see where his ceiling is. Right, and for a guy who's felt like he may have had a very low ceiling and feels like maybe he's um, he's maybe even outperformed his own expectations or at least has met the expectations that he secretly had. Um, right. To leave it is to say, well, now what? I got to start over. I'm a scarred imp with essentially no and that's just it i gotta start from scratch and my scratch is pretty low now in his defense this is a pretty harsh world and his particular physiology is really helped quite a bit by his reputation and the wealth he has right right it's really really hard to be a little person without wealth and reputation so I, I would imagine. So I think that he feels like leaving that behind means putting himself in sort of a a different kind of peril. Mm-hmm. The original title for this episode was Chains. It was just going to be called Chains. And there are a few chains that are important in this episode. Danny is becoming increasingly motivated by, you know, being a breaker of chains sure. or whatever. Okay. And then... 
is immediately after that scene, we go to this scene where Tyrion is offering these golden chains to uh, oh yeah to Shay. Okay, right. And I think that the metaphor kind of hits you over the head, right? Yeah, it's yeah. sort of like, what are you offering me, Tyrion? You're offering me literal golden chains. I'm going to live in a house, and I'm going to basically be your sex slave. Yeah. And to sort of drive the point home, he says, you could buy a ship with this or something like that. I think he says that. Which is, that that is sort of a metaphor for freedom, you know? Right. So, um, Jamie, Jamie saves Brienne from a bear. Yeah, sure. Little nod to Anchorman. That was nice. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I didn't think about Anchorman, but, uh, I can see the parallel for sure. I've thought about it the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> You're just waiting for Baxter to jump down and talk to the bear. <laughs> yeah. I figured one of the dire wolves would come down and negotiate. You know, I know a little something about that scene. So originally when they did Anchorman, they didn't have Baxter come back and they did a couple of test runs with the viewing and it got very, people did not like the fact that Baxter died. Oh, I would doubt. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense to me. People were like, you killed the dog. You can't kill the dog. And so that was what motivated the return of Baxter. That, that was a, that was through test audiences. Yeah. Well, I think they made the right choice. I think so too. I, you know, talk about trope busting, you know, you have the, you know, I think that in these sort of wizards and, you know, swords and warlocks kind of shows, it's normally like the knight saves the princess. Right. But because, because we've already sort of subverted the expectations of the knights and Brienne is sort of already sort of a gender bending, you know, person in her role. You can kind of toss in this little tropey night saves the pretty girl uh, as kind of a meta commentary. I, I, I mean, that's kind of how I read it. Um, that, you know, she's in a pink dress and he, you know, he's going to come and save the day, all that business. But it's kind of with a wink and a nod like, yeah, I know that this is a little bit, this is a little bit hokey. Well, yeah, but also maybe necessarily so. Because what's our wrestling match with with Jamie is we can't trust him. He's if he's a knight, he's a bad knight. Yeah. And so so we've had these like flirtations of redemption, or at least you know whether or not it it redeems post incest child murder. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, this probably doesn't redeem anything, but it's certainly an act of altruism or at least sort of guilt-motivated action. This is the closest thing we've seen to chivalry from him. Yeah, that's right. Because we've had hints of it with trying to talk about sapphires. Clearly, his, his relationship with Brienne has sort of changed our perception of him. And this is the moment. This is the moment of action where He's like, no, we're going to turn this whole thing around. I'm going to use whatever leverage I have. And he doesn't have a bunch. His only leverage is, look, the mission is to return me to my father. And I can say whatever I want, and he'll believe whatever I say. And so he's and he's willing to, I mean, the Jamie that we've, we, we were introduced to just keeps on riding to King's Landing. Yeah. And so so to have this sort of, save the maiden you know the bear and the maiden fair is the title right i mean I, she's yeah, in right. this she's in this sort of ridiculous dress as you kind of pointed out like she just doesn't i think it's got to be intentional that she doesn't doesn't 
match what she's what she's all about. So it, so it does have that feeling of like, oh yeah, this now this guy's a knight. Now he's the knight that we that, that we see as knights, right? I mean, at least in terms of what our the lore has taught us. So yeah, while it feels a little hokey and maybe it's a little wink and a nod, there's actually something kind of effective about it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Uh, so finally, Joffrey and Tywin. We have not seen these two on the screen together before. No, we now we. It's very clear what Tywin's role is. Ty, all right. I, I have two questions about this scene. The first is that I. Well, the first is just a statement. The walk up to the throne, like Tywin is doing so much with so little, so few lines in this oh, yeah. scene. He, but his physical presence, sort of his nonchalant walk into the throne room taking his time and then his pause and then his ascent up the stairs to the throne i watched that scene a couple times just the ascent i thought that was just because joffrey's just sitting there like oh shit yeah it was great that walk (laughs) up he can do anything to me yeah well and then tywin has cast such a shadow and yeah. and as he wake, makes his way up, and I love it because it's all about like uh, the. Do you expect me to walk? And like he walks so deliberately up the steps, <laughs> like yes. <laughs> Perhaps we could have someone carry you. <laughs> so to my second issue here, is Tywin in danger? Because Tyrion kind of had this role as hand before, and we now we know that. Joffrey felt intimidated by Tyrion and then tried to murder Tyrion. Right. So is Tywin now in danger? And it's not like that Ned worked out as the hand either. Exactly. In fact, it was Joffrey who ordered him to be killed. Yeah, these hands are not uh, they're not doing so well. Well, so here's the thing, right? So we, we had a conversation about Jamie being stuck between patricide uh and was it regicide is that was the yeah and so and he chose regicide and there may have been other factors right but he may have already been predisposed to like i'm not killing my dad like so so i can so that part's maybe more clear to him um so with that you know that's where you have this like where Tyrion is like the one the one character that seems to befuddle him is tywin so again daddy issues being the case but joffrey's Joffrey's a different sort. Joffrey doesn't play by any rules per se. You know, he may be intimidated by Tywin, but then that may be all the more reason to just, well, just maybe I have to eliminate Tywin because his daddy issues are are very different than everybody else's daddy issues <laughs> because right. his daddy issues right. are like, is my uncle my daddy? And- it's confusing to be Joffrey. It's a confusing time for a lot of reasons. You know, he's he's a budding serial killer. <laughs> yes. You know, he's going through puberty, and he doesn't know who his dad is. Right. These are all issues. And it's not just that. It's just that if the, and there's rumors abound, right? So it's like he's kind of in a spot where it's like he'll never, you know, and whether he's fully aware of that or not, he, he's never going to be not seen as the king with an asterisk. I think by nature he's insecure. Yeah, and it doesn't help when your grandfather is also the hand of the king, and you're the king, so you kind of are supposed to be able to tell him what to do, but there's no question that he's probably wiser than you when it comes to most things. But at the same time, your authority is supposed to 
to rule and you've been you get you get slapped around an awful lot for a king <laughs> yes you do <laughs> in fact you might make the argument that he's been slapped more as a king than he has anything else all right a little subtle note i will point out and i didn't i didn't see this till i watched this this last time but um his wardrobe um is suggestive his that what he's wearing on the throne is this uh I don't know what you call it, a robe or a blouse or whatever, but uh, it's it's got flowers on it. Interesting. And he was very anti-flower before. He was very anti-flowers. But then we saw the scene with Marjorie getting her claws into him, you know, yeah. to quote Cersei or whatever. And I think that there's a subtle suggestion there that he's you know, he's all in for Marjorie at this point. Right. And so if she's if, if she's telling him to soften, he'll soften. Or, you know, if, if the way to Joffrey's heart is to sort of play up his sadism, she's going to do that. Right? right. This is a very necessary episode, right? This is one I think that, that you know, we talk about ones that sort of move the plot along. And like, obviously, every episode of things happen that are, are fairly dramatic, but some just have that more of feeling of like, let's get you to the next point because the next point's more important than where we are at at this particular moment. I think the Danny scene with they bring the envoy in. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a Rosdal Mo Eraz, I guess this yeah, is Yeah, I think that's pretty good, uh pretty good sequence. Right. Okay, I wanted to ask you about this. We haven't really talked about the sort of visual effects of this show. So I think that this season is 2013. Okay. How are you liking the dragons? I mean, uh, this is all CGI. Does it take you out of the narrative? Are you in? Are you noticing it or uh, appreciating? I think it? I'm pretty forgiving of CGI because of you know having gone through all the years, right? So I know I'm not watching something brand new, so I don't necessarily have maybe the same level of expectation for the CGI. But I don't think it's bad. I mean, I think it actually holds up decent. I think I've also come to accept what dragons look like with CGI. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Over over the course of the last couple decades, maybe going back to Dragonheart with uh, Sean Connery as the voice. Sure, sure. Um, so you know, Jurassic Park feels fine. Maybe that's I've just grown accustomed to. This is what on-screen dragons are going to look like. Yeah, um, I I think it's decent. I think it I is mean, decent. I... I think the sound helps. I think they do a good job with the sound and the the sound mixing. I think really helps with the visuals. So yeah, so this is a good scene where Danny's basically I mean Danny's holding court. She's she knows she's finally got a fair bit of power. And but she's also smart. I I feel like she's definitely punching above her weight. Right. I would point. agree. She's got dragons that are maturing. She's got a big old army and uh working to to continue to uh, to add to it and doing it in a very She's working with one goal, and that's she's looking to to get herself to that throne. And those well, I all right. Let me push back on that one. All right. So the one goal would be toward the throne. I think that that's the, oh, that generally. I think that that's right. However, I think she's also convinced herself that she's this liberator, and just like so, wherever she goes, she's just going to free all the slaves. And it's kind of questionable about whether or not this is actually going to get her what she wants. Not to say that that's not a noble end, but was it Jorah that said, look, you don't need this city. Right. You do not need this city. And the offer by this Yunkai guy is basically to say, hey, look, you want to go to Westeros? Here's a ship. Yeah. We'll give you 
give you lots of gold. You can use it. Leave us alone. But she's motivated by disrespect, right? Sure. <laughs> she, she doesn't want to be disrespected. I mean, none of us do, but a few, very few of us will go to war over it. And she feels like she's making the world a better place by breaking chains. Yeah, and I'll and I'll and I'll push back on that just a touch to complicate it. Is that um, you can say that you're a liberator, and in order to liberate, you have to conquer. So, much in the same way that that Rob was considered a threat because of all of the battles he won, she's been offered the opportunity to avoid battle, mm-hmm. and. I think that there's this element of like, look, I can have both. I can be on the throne as a liberator and a conqueror. And I think that the liberation is the great on paper motivation, right? That's the thing that's going to gonna help mm-hmm. people be loyal and will, because you, if you're going to lead, like we've, we've seen this narrative kind of come through a lot where Joffrey's been challenged by both Tyrion and Marjorie to be, keep the people sated mm-hmm. and, you don't want an uprising of your own people. So be viewed as a little benevolent. Use benevolence as as a tool to get to what you want. And you can continue to conquer the more followers you have. So there's there's something to be said for, look, I can, I can it's like, you know, when you, have, you ever play, of course you have, Super Mario Brothers, right? And you, yeah. you can warp zone your way all the way to the end, but then there's still this feeling of like, I mean, I just sort of skipped a bunch of things. I mean, it's within the rules. I can certainly do it, but how good am I? Yeah. So remember in episode eight where they go to the casino planet? Uh-huh. See, this is my worry. Okay. The the, the whole casino planet narrative, it's, it's such a sidebar. I, I start to worry. Well, it was an intentional sidebar. I, 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 you know, and I've defended the casino planet to this is a, this is the director's attempt to, to trope bust within, uh, within the star Wars saga. So he, he, I mean, what ends up happening is that becomes of course, maybe more important than the actual narrative uh, is to upset the expectation. So I think from a bigger picture perspective, the idea was if I can upset all the expectations, then now I have the freedom in the next, uh, the next chapter to, to do what I want. And once expectations are removed, then now I can create a new journey. And then they said, ah, people don't like it. They want the expectations. And so he was pulled from the next project. There you go. See, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> people like the tropes. I mean, Star Wars is pretty big success. I think that we could all agree. Do we, do we really need to bust it? Well, bust it up. If the criticism of force awakens was that it was just basically almost a complete remake of of a new hope then you run into the wall what do you would you hire me for just to do a remake of empire strikes back you know what i liked i liked the remake in fact i would love to see a remake of empire empire is a a wonderful movie it's not like i'm seeing all that much original on the screen these days anyway uh, so, if so, you can so, remake so you're the like, classic, hey, you're, I will do, so, you, I will so you're over it. it. You're over originality. I am over it. I want to see every new actor in Hollywood. I want them required to play Spider-Man in a movie and then Batman in a movie. I want to see that many Batman movies and that many Spider-Man movies. No, well, you're going to get it. So, uh, 
in a chapter we read earlier, Joffrey and Sansa go off on this little sort of first date. Mm-hmm. And they, they're just out in the middle of nowhere. And um, they come across a little town or whatever. And he just kind of walks in and demands lunch or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I'm just wondering, like, is it because he's wearing really expensive clothing and so a commoner would think well that person must be the prince because it's not just some commoner claiming to be the prince because only the prince would wear those clothes sure i mean think about it today so if you are in a restaurant or wherever and a person walks in with a gucci bag and yeah uh right with designer clothes on you are automatically going to think or, you know, drives up in a Mercedes. Like you're going to think certain things about that person that they belong to a certain category and you might not know what they do or, but you know that they have money. And so clothes have always been used to signify social status and to communicate um, wealth. And that's one of the reasons Mm. why, why, you know, now that the whole knockoff um, brand is such a such big business, but it's also something that luxury brands actively try to stop is because it's it's people who right. you know, quote unquote don't belong um, wearing or having those luxury items masquerade as something that they're not. Sure. And so we see that in the in the Middle Ages as well, where you know, like there's a um you don't want people who don't belong wearing, you know, the color of scarf or the kind of fur or, you know, wearing things in a certain way. There's regulations on how you could wear your hair and hmm. you're not part of that category. We're going to have Jana Matthews on every week to answer a listener question. Of course, in order to make this work, we're going to need your help. Please email to book at baldmove.com. If you have a question for Jana, this can relate to a parallel to a character in Game of Thrones, does that character have an analog in the medieval world? Or it can relate to customs or lifestyle in the medieval world. So, book at baldmove.com. Book at baldmove.com. 